tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. As a race mechanic, a championship winning team manager, and the FIA's deputy race director, Herbie Blash has experienced almost everything that Formula One has to offer. With a team, you have your highs and your lows. You'll walk out where you've won the race, and yeah, that's a great high. And when you're in race control, you can't show those emotions. You can't sit in race control and bang the desk and yeah, go on. No. We couldn't allow ourselves to become passionate about a particular car or a particular driver. It's not emotional. When you're with a team, it is emotional. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid. I'm Tom Clarkson and this week I'm speaking to a bona fide Formula One legend. A man who's worked at the top echelon for more than 50 years and whose enthusiasm for it today is as infectious as it was when he started out. Herbie Blash's F1 journey began as a mechanic with Rob Walker and Lotus in the 1960s. And he went on to become team manager at Brabham, where he won more races and more world titles. Then came his decades with the FIA, where his job was to keep the teams in line and ensure the smooth running of the sport. In short, what Herbie doesn't know about Formula One isn't worth knowing. He recalls some fascinating stories. He talks about his relationship with Bernie Ecclestone and some of the tricks that Brabham got up to in order to win. Plus, what it was like to work with champion drivers like Nicky Lauda, Graham Hill and Jochen Rindt. F1 is much safer now than it was at the start of Herbie's career, and we talk about how he copes with the death of Rint at Monza in 1970, and whether such driver fatalities made him consider quitting. He also tells me how he and Charlie Whiting became such close friends, and he shares his passion for motorbikes and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. What a career, Herbie. You've spent more than 50 years in and around Formula One. Do you love it as much today as you did back in 1968 when you joined Lotus for the first time? Yes, I do. I follow it. Uh, although I'm not going to all of the races, yeah, I follow every practice session, every qualifying, read about it every day. But if I was to say the old days were a lot more fun the politics never existed as such. The teams were very small. Everybody knew everybody. And it really was a family. The whole, going back to the 70s, for example, the whole team, the whole of Formula One, including the drivers for the flyaways, we'd all be on the same aeroplane. And so it was very small. And when you look today, maybe two teams was the equivalent to what the whole of uh, the Formula One paddock used to be uh, back in its day. It has grown exponentially. What is it about F1, though, that has kept you intrigued all of that time? 
it's just pure passion and it's a, a passion when I look back as to why did I have an interest in racing and I remember when I was in my primary school at the age of eight and we used to have these films once a term and they were the old Esso, uh, sorry shell films uh, which showed Nuvolari etc etc and I remember I used to get so excited and then I started to read about it and that's where my passion started. What excited you? That primary school kid, what was it? Was it you wanted to be a driver? Was it the technical side of it? Uh, no, obviously you, I wanted to be a driver. And I also remember there was a little go-kart manufacturing company uh, that was based in Leatherhead. And I used to go there and stand looking over the fence and with my mouth wide open, just hoping that one day I could actually sit in a cart. And I had that opportunity, I think I was about 10 years old. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to be a driver, uh, but unfortunately never had the finances. And uh, to be honest, I don't think I would, I know I would not have been good enough. I did try, but not successfully. Well, look, while we're, while we're reflecting on the first seeds, the acorn of uh, Herbie Blash and his passion for Formula One, can you remember the first F1 race you saw? Yeah, uh, it was the first race that I went to, and that was uh, down at Goodwood. And that was with uh, Rob Walker, and we had Joe Bonnier and Joe Siffert. We had a Brabham Climax and a Brabham BRM. And, uh, of course, I was just the boy. I was just the gopher, you know, carrying the fuel, washing the wheels, etc., etc. And, yeah, I thought, wow. What know. year was that? So, ooh, that would have been 64 or 65, I remember Jim Clark had, uh, had just won Indianapolis, so that was 65, I believe. And, yeah, that was it. After that, there was no stopping me. Obviously, I wasn't at Lotus at the time that Jimmy was driving. But I do remember uh, going with Rob Walker to some races, especially the British ones, and seeing Jim Clark in the Lotus Cortina, for example. And for me, he, he's still my hero. Uh, the fact that, you know, he drove so many different uh, formulas, uh, which meant using different tyres, different setups. You look at Formula One, Formula Two, saloon cars, sports cars, NASCAR. The guy was a winner in everything. So for me, as a youth, going to Lotus, and still, when I first went to Lotus, people were still talking about Jim Clark. It was every, everything was still Jim Clark. Yeah, Lotus, it was, it was like a dream come true for me. What state was Lotus in, though? You joined in 68 after Jimmy's death. When a driver died in those days, how much did it shake a team to its core, particularly one of Jimmy's abilities? Uh, to be honest, I can't really give you a true feeling about that. I can talk about my own episodes later on where I've been involved in uh, uh, fatal accidents. But with regards to Lotus, you literally, you say what state, you just worked as hard as you possibly could. Everybody was going forward. Obviously, there was a couple of people that were actually very close to, to Jimmy and that affected them very badly. Obviously, uh, the mechanic, uh, Dave Sims, Beaky, it took a good year for him to start to really get over that. Uh, but everybody else, no, it was uh, just 
carry on working. It was just different times, wasn't it, really? And what about Colin Chapman? He was the man that almost repositioned the UK at the forefront of motor racing at the time. Remember, sort of before the start of the World Championship in 1950, Grand Prix racing was all about Italy versus Germany and, and sort of England wasn't really anywhere. And then, and then suddenly Lotus come in with Chapman and we start winning everything. What was so impressive about him? First of all, he was a genius. Uh, secondly, he always had good people around him. At the time when I was at Lotus, of course, Maurice Philippe was there. And between Maurice Philippe and, and Colin, that was one of these dream teams. But Colin, obviously, he's well known for the fact that he wanted everything to be as light as possible, uh, similar to a certain Gordon Murray that we'll talk about later on. But Colin, again, was one of these guys who would work late into the night, always looking, always thinking, how can we make it go faster? What can we do here? What can we do there? And, you know, he brought in things like, while I was at Lotus, in the course of two years, uh, Chapman was heavily involved, obviously, with the Lotus 49B. Uh, we had the four-wheel drive, we had the turbine, and we had the Lotus 72. And all of that was within two years. And, and Colin, he was... All of those four projects, he was on those projects. Of course, because you're talking Formula One, you're talking IndyCar as well. Yeah, no, at that time, when I say the turbine, the turbine was for Formula One. So we had four Formula One projects in two years. As I say, uh, the, the four that I've just, just listed. So 69, there was no, no Indianapolis cars they'd finished. The Formula 2 cars, they were running from Lotus components. And, and of course, Bernie had the Jock and Rint Racing Formula 2 team after Winkleman. Uh, the other car that was running from our workshop was the, uh, the Europa, uh, the Lotus 62, I believe it was called. So in that workshop, and the workshop only consisted in total, I would say, around about 20 to 25 people and that was the actual, you had to manufacture the cars. Everything was more or less done in-house, apart from, obviously, uh, things like uprights, uh, castings. But the majority of the car, in obviously, it was all in aluminium in those days. Everything was done within this uh, one workshop. And when you worked at Lotus, and I remember when I started, uh, when I left Rob Walker's, uh, Tony Cleverly, the, the chief mechanic there, said to me, you're going to enjoy the all-nighters. I started on Monday morning, and I didn't get back to the flat that I was in until Wednesday morning. Welcome to Lotus. <laughs> and that's back at the factory. What was life like at a racetrack? Well, first of all, at a racetrack, Lotus, with Colin, you were always modifying the car. And number one, we would be normally the last to arrive at the racetrack because we've just been working all night back in the factory. Uh, our transporter had two bunks and three seats and the whole team, which was five of us, uh, you would drive through the night, literally sleeping, get out of, the, uh, out of the bunk, swap over the driving positions while we were still going. You arrive at the track and in those days, this was pre-Bernie, uh, you would sometimes have practice at nine o'clock in the morning and then it could be six o'clock in the evening. You never worked at the circuit. 
you used to load the cars up, take them off to a garage, and then work on them away from the track. There was no such things as canopies or pits that you could work in. And we would arrive back, I never forget, uh, well, a couple of major events. One was Monte Carlo after the wings were banned. And I remember getting back and we were working very close to Nice. Unloaded the cars, right, let's see if we can get something to eat. And Colin Chapman came straight in and said, right, okay, first of all, we're going to have to do some uh, manufacturing of some engine covers. And he started drawing them and we never got anywhere near a restaurant and we worked all night. And then literally it was straight to the circuit the next morning. And Colin and Graham Hill, they would both sit down and they would list one to 20 and they would come up with 20 jobs, both of them. And that was one of the early days when I met uh, Bernie and he saw us, we were working in this garage and he, he took Colin Chapman away for, for dinner. And it was like, oh, wow, oh, what a relief. And Bernie knew what he was doing, that he was kind of helping the mechanics have a slightly uh, better life. But it was just nonstop work. That is extraordinary when you think of today particularly with the curfew that we have just to help the mechanics it's different times well the curfew was brought in i have to say i was partially responsible for bringing that in along with charlie the only mistake that charlie and myself made was we ended up being first at the circuit while all the teams were still waiting outside not allowed in and then by the time we would leave the uh, the race control our office the paddock would be completely empty. So the, the curfew worked, but not for Charlie and myself. Oh. Now, you mentioned Graham Hill there. You have the extraordinary record of having worked with both Graham and his son Damon, both world champions, of course. Who was the more naturally talented driver, Graham or Damon? Wow. Obviously, two drivers in two different eras. Obviously, when uh, Graham was driving, the cars were a very, very simple car. You know, I remember the sort of things, you know, you would obviously be adjusting the suspension, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas by the time Damon was driving the car, there wasn't so much basic adjustments that you would do on a car. I would have said maybe, maybe Graham was the more natural driver. Uh, and again, he was driving in, in different disciplines. He was driving, obviously, Formula 2. Uh, he was driving in Indy cars, for example. But saying that, uh, Damon did have, obviously, tremendous ability. You don't become a uh, world champion without it. If you look back how Damon actually took the, the, the ball by the horn, so I'm, I'm varied from the Formula 3000, where Middlebridge was helping him. Uh, dropping him in the deep end, obviously uh, stepping in after Senna. Different drivers, different times. Both of them I take my hat off to. When Patrick Head came on this show, he said that perhaps Damon's greatest achievement when he was at Williams wasn't the 96 championship. It was the way he picked up the team after Ayrton was killed in 1994 and just carried them through the rest of that season. Yeah. Uh, mentally strong. Yeah. Damon was obviously very, very strong mentally. I know uh, in his world championship time, though, the pressure was getting to him. 
And I remember George Harrison kind of helping him learn how to meditate and how to calm things down. Uh, yeah, and he then came back and won the championship. The very sad thing was, of course, that uh, then he left Williams. Ah, but left Williams and came to work with you, Herbie, because you had so many shirts on, on in those days. You were obviously working for the FIA. We'll come on to that. But you were also running Yamaha's Formula One program. And in 97, Damon drove the Arrows Yamaha. He came so close to winning the Hungarian Grand Prix in 97. Damon Hill is now on his 76th lap out of 77. It's a nail-biting situation with Villeneuve gaining, gaining, gaining. 24 seconds is the gap now between the ailing, slowing Damon Hill. There he is. Oh, no, he's cruising, Murray. He's absolutely cruising. He's obviously lost a lot of use of the throttles. I mean, look, he's going very, very slowly. Villeneuve's going to take the lead. Villeneuve is going to win the Hungarian Grand Prix. was leading until a technical problem slowed him and he finished second. Can you describe your disappointment as he crossed the line in second place? Well, first of all, in those days, that year and the year before, I used to turn up originally with my Yamaha clothing on and I'd go through with my Yamaha team, which was obviously uh, Japanese. Uh, we would go through what we were going to go through. And that year, of course, it was the Arrows uh, Yamaha team with uh, Tom Walkinshaw. I would then change into my FIA clothing and go to the race control. And then I'd be basically in the race control uh, for first track inspections, first practice session. And then I would whip down very quickly to see my Yamaha people to see how the first session went. Then I would whip back into uh, race control. Can I say, this is mad. You were it poacher turn gamekeeper on the same day. <laughs> exactly. And the most amazing thing is that all of the teams, they all knew that I was with a team and with the FIA and not one complained. And I never gave anybody the opportunity uh, to say that oh, he's doing this or doing that. And also it was a little bit embarrassing because, which we'll maybe come on to in a moment, but uh, Bernie and Max at one time wanted me to be the starter as well. And I would have been the starter and having my own team running. Uh, so anyway, Charlie then took that role of starter. Going back to Hungary, uh, yeah, I was in race control and yeah, I was uh, obviously getting quite excited, but I couldn't show my emotions because, as I say, I was wearing FIA and I was in the race control, obviously con running the race. And about three laps from the end, two laps from the end, uh, one of my guys came on the radio. Ah, oh, congratulations. Ah, oh, fantastic. And then bang. And yeah, it was so sad because... Yeah, the Yamaha program, it wasn't a hugely successful program, unfortunately. A lot of that was uh, basically down to finance. The Yamaha program was a, a very underfinanced uh, program. But when you look, it nearly won. And then when you look at the might of Toyota and you see the effort that they put in and they never won a race, but we became within one lap of winning, which would have been an incredible story. Oh, extraordinary. But, uh, yeah, very sad. And, and that, unfortunately, was also the last season for Yamaha in, in Formula One. 
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Let's just briefly go back to the Lotus days because it was there that you were working with Jochen Rint brilliant driver. What are your memories of Jochen? Well, kind of the first time that uh, Jochen came into kind of my view was in Formula 2, where he was just a star in Formula 2. And then, bang, kind of meeting him when he first arrived at Lotus. Yeah, very laid-back guy, very funny guy. For some reason, I got on extremely well with him. Maybe because I, I used to have to light his cigarette for him after, after the practice sessions and the race. Now, he was an incredible driver. I wouldn't say that... Uh, now, if you're talking about natural ability, he had it. Technically, no, he wasn't, he wasn't anything special. It, I kind of... After Jochen, I would look at uh, Ronnie Peterson as being a similar type of driver to Jochen. Jochen was a very nice guy got on very well with him he he gave it 100 percent. and i guess this was the period where you first came into proper contact with bernie eccleston because he was managing jochen wasn't he correct yeah very much so and uh, with with bernie as i say the first the first meeting with bernie was when he took colin chapman and graham hill away from monte carlo at least gave us a little bit of a rest break and then the next time we kind of really met Bernie, because Bernie was also very friendly with Colin Chapman, and him and Colin would go off, and it was always kind of a relief. Ah, okay, we're, we're, we're going to have a little bit of a rest break now. But then, I think it was 1969, it was Brands Hatch, the British Grand Prix, and we won that Grand Prix and there was a little bit of an issue with the rear wing, the height of the rear wing. And I remember Bernie getting heavily involved there. Uh, yes, well, you're measuring on this stone, you're not measuring on that stone. And uh, Bernie, was, Bernie was acting like what he was, a used car dealer. And also at that particular time, it was the first time that I started to kind of understand bending the regulations because my job was actually to kneel on the, on the wing end stays to uh, reduce the height of the rear wing. And then later on in my, <clears throat> in my motor racing career, I think you know that uh, with Brabham's, we used to take things to the limit and over. That's Formula One, is taking it to the limit, though, in everything. Yeah, for me, I remember, you know, we would sit down in the early days, especially uh, kind of with Gordon and Bernie, and we look at the regulations and you'd be looking righty-ho. Now, where can we, uh, what can we do here to uh, take that regulation to the limit? And maybe a little bit over and just hope that you don't get caught. <laughs> well, come on to Brabham. But when you got to know Bernie in, in the Jochen Rint era, 
Did you have any inkling that he wanted to be a team owner at that point? Well, first of all, you've got to remember he was a team owner because he owned the Jochen Rint Formula 2 team. And if you started to look, you know, Bernie, remember, had his own team with the, the Vambles. What, Stuart Lewis Evans and... Yeah, and, and, and remember, Bernie actually did try to qualify a Formula 1 car in Monte Carlo. So, yeah, he was a team owner. After Joachim was killed, basically the communication uh, between myself and Bernie was very limited. And then out of the blue, uh, he informed me that he was going to buy a team. Let's put it this way, it didn't surprise me. It didn't surprise me at all. It seems that when Joachim was killed, Bernie just wanted some space from Formula One. As much as he had lots of other business interests as well, as well of course, but he wanted space. Did you, when Jochen was killed, want space from Formula One? Did you think of, of well, for want of a better word, quitting Formula One because of that? Yeah, I did, because I had seen other fatal accidents in Formula One and people, obviously, that I knew. And I never forget at Hockenheim having breakfast. And then the next, the next day, they weren't there for breakfast. But when it came to Jochen... That did hit me very hard because, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, was the, I was the boy of the team. You know, I was just 21. And I had to help Bernie clear everything up. And then I had to take Jochen's car back to his home in Switzerland, loaded with his uh, bits and pieces in from the hotel room. And I, was, and I was on my own because Colin got the team to move out of Italy immediately uh, because obviously he had been through that situation with Jim Clark and Von Tripps. And as we know from uh, the Senna, for example, uh, you know, they impound the car and basically you might never get that car back and you're not even allowed to go and inspect it to see uh, what, what might have actually caused the accident. So Colin moved the team out and left myself and the one guy that I was working with was Bernie. And so that was really the start of a, a close relationship. So you drive Jochen's road car back to his home in Switzerland and is that the time that you were questioning your future? No, because obviously I was still in shock and I just remember arriving at the gates and driving down and there was uh, Nina standing on the balcony waving. And I never forget going through my mind, oh, she must be thinking this is Jochen arriving, arriving back, uh, back home, because the way she was waving. And then when she opened the door, and there was Piers Courage's wife there. And, of course, Piers had been killed what, four weeks earlier, five weeks earlier. And... I'm now sitting down, uh, you know, having a cup of tea, and both ladies are, are crying. And then from the top of the stairs, Jochen's daughter, Natasha, is at the top of the stairs, Papa, Papa, Papa. And now I'm, as I say, I'm 21 years old. Uh, I've just been working with a driver that's just been killed. And now I'm with his wife and another lady whose husband had lost his life. And yeah, I never forget thinking, what am I doing? 
And it was then on the way home. In fact, I traveled with Piers's brother who turned up at the house later. And when I got back home, yeah, that's when I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just don't want to be involved in this anymore. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very tough time. And when I look back on it, there, there was nobody at Lotus that really kind of put an arm around you and, and helped you. You know, you were very much on your own. In your experience, how do racing drivers justify the risks associated with the job? Just changing the subject now, I'm going to go on to motorcycles because I know quite a few motorcyclists and I've never been, but I do follow the Isle of Man. Whereas last year, there was six fatal accidents. And there's a current rider, uh, Michael Dunlop, who, you know, his uncle, father, brother, I'm not sure which, but like two of them, unfortunately, have lost their lives. And he's still racing. And you listen to him, and there, there is no fear. It's, if it happens, it happens. I'm going to die doing something that I love. Now, in Formula One, fortunately, it is, and I'm touching wood, it's a very, very, very safe sport. So I think from a Formula One driver today, and the drivers that I know, and some I know extremely well, and people like, even going back like Gerhard Berger, that's a really good friend, they never, ever talk about a fatal accident. And hopefully, you know, we never see another fatal accident. The drivers, going back to uh, Jochen's time, and obviously, you know, Jackie Stewart will tell you, obviously, the the hard time that he went through with losing so many close friends. But they all, they, well, I was going to say they all carried on, obviously, with uh, with Jackie and Francois Sever. That was, that was it for him. And he'd already lost Jochen and we'd lost Piers, etc. You knew it was a dangerous sport, but nobody really spoke about it. Now, you've worked with Valentino Rossi, of course, when he was at Yamaha in MotoGP. He also tested for Ferrari in the sort of 2006 era. And I felt it got quite close to him making the switch between uh, bike racing and car racing. Do you think Rossi would have made a good Formula One drive? Yeah, I think he would have. I didn't work that closely with Rossi. I was more on the racing committee for Yamaha for MotoGP. So I, I was only going to a few races, really, when Rossi was actually riding. But what I saw of Rossi and, you know, his technical feedback, uh, his dedication, he want, wanted to know everything that was going on. I think he actually would have succeeded as a, as a Formula One driver. And as you know, he's now driving a, a BMW. Uh, he just had his first podium. But be very interested to see when he eventually gets into one of the Le Mans cars, which I believe will be happening in the future. And then we'll see. But, of course, age is against him at the moment uh, for Formula One. But, yeah, I believe that he would have been a welcome addition. And I th he, 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 would have, he would have made himself proud, I'm sure. So what about Brabham? You get the call from the big man, Mr. E, and you become team manager in 1972. What sort of racing team did Bernie run? Well, first of all... 
Burnley obviously took on a team that was already there and established. And it took a couple of years to kind of move away from the from the Ron Toronac team to when he went over to the Gordon Murray team. And as soon as the Gordon Murray team arrived, that's when Bernie really had an input. Bernie didn't really have so much of an input before because the cars were already there, the team was already there. And then he started to have a clear out. And basically Gordon, <laughs> Gordon was on his own or thrown in at the deep end. Although we were still manufacturing uh, production cars, we were still manufacturing Formula 2 and Formula 3 cars. And I think we were looking at a Formula 5000 car. Yeah, we were. But as soon as uh, Bernie then put his heart into it, yeah, that's when you saw Bernie meant business. You mentioned Gordon Murray, who was chief designer, technical director, I guess. Were there similarities, in your view, between Gordon Murray and Colin Chapman? Yeah, very much so. Gordon is all about lightness, but the advantage with Gordon was also he liked to make things as simple as possible. Whereas Colin, uh, i never forget with that four-wheel drive Lotus, that was one of the most complicated cars, mechanically anyway, uh, that, that I've seen. Uh, whereas Gordon would really make it as light as possible. Uh, obviously, we didn't know much about aero in those days. Nobody knew anything really about aero. But Gordon did have a clue about aero. There was some strips underneath the car that nobody really saw. And he was starting to understand that. And again, you look at the things that we did at Brabham's as a team. And obviously, Gordon was uh, the technical director. But a lot of us also had the fortunate uh, time of being able to put in ideas uh, you look at when we went over to the uh, pit stops, for example, when we introduced that. It wasn't just a matter of introducing a pit stop. First of all, it was the type of refueling uh, apparatus that we needed, what needed to be done in the fuel tank. We were putting in fuel at a most, most dangerous pressure you can imagine and we could actually more or less break a car in half if if the uh, the breather wasn't fitted correctly so there we are we're doing refueling the next is ah we're going to change tires at the same time which was obviously part of the equation so we then went over to air jacks nobody had air jacks we went over to wheel guns nobody had wheel guns we then ah okay, now we need a tyre heater. What do we do? So we built like a, an old telephone box and just had a gas heater pumping in. And there was all sorts of dramas because we'd end up heating just one part of the tyre and maybe melting the tyres. But Gordon, you know, Gordon was into everything as well. So we could come up with ideas and Gordon would always be able to kind of finalise them. And even down to... We were the only team to have a little uh, pit, uh, a motorised pit vehicle to transport the tyres around. Everyone else was pushing barrows around, struggling with fuel. And there we were just driving past. And the funny thing is that that actually was a centre seat vehicle, a little bit like McLaren's <laughs> F1 road car. In fact, I've only just thought about that. But <laughs> That's yeah, where it came from. Exactly. Of course, it was a Gordon Murray yeah, design as well. And 
We were the first, first team to have an articulated vehicle. We were the first team that kind of looked after our, our own little catering. Carbon fiber brakes. We were the first with carbon fiber brakes. As I say, Gordon was right behind all of this. We were the first team to actually have a complete rear end. So we could actually build back in the factory. We could have the engine, the gearbox, the uprights, etc., already f with radiators, already for the race. And that would be our race engine. So on a Saturday night, within uh, 45 minutes, we would have a completely new race rear end on and the car was ready to go, which used to really wind the other teams up because we would be the first to leave the paddock. We were the first to have uh, music similar to Red Bull at the moment. You did things differently. That is what's yeah. coming across now. And the, the, the sort of thing, you know, we would we'd come up with all sorts of ideas. And I remember, I think it was in South Africa, we had Renault next door to us and we were fighting for the world championship because we had various parts that were kind of suspension that would disappear overnight. So we used to kind of set a few things up. And one was we left the setup sheet within view of Renault and we left it so that they could actually put their hands through the fence and take it. And um, we just marked where it was. And of course, the next morning, yeah, it was in a different position. And we had put down ridiculous cambers, casters, tow-ins, etc. And of course, we were quicker than Renault. And I'm sure that, I wow. love these games. It, it, I mean... In a funny kind of way, for all the seriousness of Formula One, everything you've just described, you know, the, the innovation, but also, you know, when I say what was the vibe like in the team, it was obvious, it was clearly good and fun. And I don't want to trivialise it by saying Formula One seemed to be a bit of a game. Is that fair or not? Yeah, yeah, that was fair. And I've just had two people, actually, uh, ex-Brabham people that uh, then went to work at McLaren. And they were just talking about the days at Brabham, how it was a real team. We worked hard and boy, we played hard. And uh, it was totally different to the, uh, the, the Ron McLaren that, uh, that they went to. Now, we touched on it earlier, but, you know, we said that Brabham sailed pretty close to the wind. Can you just give me some examples of where you perhaps pushed the limits a bit far? Oh, I can't give those secrets away. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think it's well known that uh, we used to sometimes have heavy body work and that body work would go on at the end of the practice or the end of the race. I think the real classic maybe had to be the water-cooled brakes. And so in those days, you could top up your fluids at the end of the race before you were weighed again. And, of course, we had these lovely tanks. I forget, they must have held about five gallons. And uh, going round to the start of the race, you push the button and the little electric motor would just dump all of that water out. And uh, then the end of the race, oh, yeah, we've got to top up the water tanks. Do you think everyone was playing these games? I think the majority of the, of the top teams were playing. I know, I know Williams played. Tyrrell, unfortunately, went a step too far when they were pumping lead into their, uh, into their tyres during the pit stop. I know of a team that was pumping water into their tyres. Uh, we used to have 
a rather heavy seat that took two people, our two strongest mechanics, to uh, lift into the car in preparation for, for weighing at the end of the race. Yeah, there was lots of little tricks. Uh, Do you know what, Herbie? We, we, you were the perfect man to go and work for the FIA because you knew all of the tricks. Yeah, back in those days. But the, 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 the tricks today now, uh, <laughs> basically, they're, they're all computerized. <laughs> uh, but, and obviously, the cars are scrutineered from top to bottom, you know, even down to all the radiuses, etc. I think the only area that I would uh, question today is maybe the the flexing of the of the of the wing elements. That, however much weight uh, the FIA have to put on the wings, when you actually look on a TV on an uh, onboard shot, and you can actually see the wings move. And I remember I used to sit there with a ruler trying to work out on the screen in race control or oh, how far that uh, that front flap is going down or that rear wing is moving and so yeah it's very it's so restricted and would be so so difficult now you know all of the fuel is is checked yeah just just everything is checked whereas of course in our day uh it well, back in those brabham days it was very relaxed and it was so easy to uh, do things that you shouldn't do. We, we had a very special lightweight Monte Carlo qualifying car. And of course, in those days, you didn't have to race with the, the car that you qualified in. Yeah, I think that must have had the smallest fuel tank, uh, <laughs> smallest fuel tank, a little motorcycle battery. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been able to do more than, I don't know, six laps. And then the drivers as well, Nelson, uh, what impressed me in the very early days, I knew Nelson because always I had an, an interest in Brazil because originally I was with uh, Wilson Filipaldi and then obviously Carlos in Pache. In F2. Yeah, but then Carlos Pache in Formula One. And Emerson I knew. In fact, I was the first person to put Emerson in a Formula One car, uh, which Emerson is very happy to acknowledge that uh, one Sunday at Lotus uh, and I saw this spotty little Brazilian boy looking around the corner and uh, yeah what do you want and he said, oh this is the Formula One and so I called him in and got a step and put him in the Lotus 49 and I think he was in there for about 20 minutes <laughs> turning the steering wheel and uh, yeah and Emerson's very happy to uh, in fact it's in his book that uh, I put him in the Formula One car what an extraordinary story. And actually, just while we're on that topic, not just Emerson Fittipaldi, actually. I read recently that Nelson Piquet's first contact with Brabham was as a gopher or a mechanic at the 1974 Brazilian Grand Prix. Uh, yeah, it wasn't actually at the Brazilian Grand Prix. It was in Brasilia, which was a non-championship race, which was the week after the Brazilian Grand Prix. And yeah, he was a gopher. And we put him in the boot of the car, take him in, and uh, he, there he was cleaning the wheels. So yeah, knew Nelson. And then when he came over, started to, obviously, I personally started to take a, a close interest as to how he was getting on. And we were racing in Paul Ricard, Formula One, and Nelson was in Formula Three. And Nelson was telling me how he, his lap belts and his seat belts, he basically extremely loose because down the straight, it would enable him to submarine in the car just so that uh, for the wind resistance. 
Oh, really? For drag. How it's the long mistral yeah. straight at Paul Ricard. Yeah. yeah. Highly dangerous. Another time, he had a helmet that, well, it was just made of fiberglass. Uh, as soon as we found that out, obviously we stopped that. But he was just doing whatever he could for weight. So you can now see one of the reasons why Nelson and Gordon formed that team, the same as in some ways uh, Jim Clark and Colin Chapman. You know, they were a relationship. And I suppose today you could say the same, obviously, with Adrian Newey and, and Verstappen. It's just a team that really gels together and works. Look, while we're talking Nelson Piquet, three-time world champion, obviously, two of those coming with Brabham. But in terms of what he was doing in the cockpit, if we can just focus on that for a second. You brilliant. Know, he was brilliant. Quick. Absolutely. Yeah. He was quick. He was uh, very intelligent. He learned a hell of a lot from Nicky Lauda. Because they were teammates, of course. Yeah, yeah, and they got on really well together. And then uh, Nicky actually uh, got Nelson into aeroplanes and getting his own license, etc. And they, re they remained very, very, very close for, uh, for a long, long time. You mentioned Nicky Lauda as well. I mean, clearly a brilliant driver, but one moment in Nicky's career I wanted to ask you about was Montreal 1979. He was on a, a big contract with Brabham. He was the number one driver. I think quite a lot was made at the time of him earning a cup $2 million a year, which was far and away the biggest salary on the grid. Yet he comes in after a practice session and says, Bernie, I've had enough. What do you remember of that? So he came in into the pits. I think it was after the first practice session. He came in and Charlie was actually his chief mechanic. And he went through with Charlie and he gave Charlie a little list of jobs to do. And then he got me to walk down with him because back in those days, we used to be based where, what, it was about 400 yards away where the boat sheds were in Montreal at the bottom of the lake. And we had a small motor home there. And he was asking me where Bernie was, I explained, so off we went. As we were walking down, he said, uh, I'm, not, I'm not getting back in the car, you know that, don't you? I said, what? He said, no, I've had enough. And he said, I'm gonna go and buy that aeroplane. Now, just before we get back to the walking in to the motor home with Bernie, I knew the chief training captain for British Caledonian and he arranged when we were racing at Long Beach to go to the McDonnell Douglas factory and I went with Nicky and Nicky we managed to get him into a simulator which is what it was all about we met I can't remember but we met someone who had been uh, to the moon and driving back Nicky said to me he said I'm I'm going to buy one of those and it was a laugh and a joke and then when we were walking down, that's when he said to me, I'm going to go and buy that aeroplane, which needless to say, that's exactly what he did. And that was the start of Louder Air. But anyway, we arrived down into the caravan, walked in and uh, he told Bernie, that's it. Do you think Bernie was expecting it? No, I don't think so. But with Bernie, Bernie's also such a cool customer that uh, you would never see, uh, you know, Bernie would not. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah, OK. Right. Well, uh, 
okay, you don't want to drive the car, you don't want to drive the car, it's okay. I was, I can't, I really can't remember that, the whole conversation, but it wasn't a very long conversation. But I remember Bernie saying, well, leave your overalls and helmet here because I've got to find someone to drive the car. And there was Zanino outside, uh, lo and behold, he was a Formula One driver. And Nicky literally just walked out, and of course nobody knew what, what was going on, Nicky changed, and Nicky just walked out and just disappeared. So were you surprised when Nicky came back a few years later with McLaren? I was disappointed, because I would liked him to have come back with us, uh, and especially being that it was our other driver, his ex-teammate John Watson with him, which I was very close to John, and like to think I still am, and very, very close to Nicky. And especially uh, when they were winning races, and that really, that really hurt because we were kind of going through a bit of a hard time ourselves. But getting back to Nicky and the respect I have for Nicky, we were doing a tyre test in Sweden, and I, and I was running the test. And I'd always go back to a control tyre. So we'd start first thing with a control tyre, set a time. And as you know, during the day, the track temperature changes. And so with a control tyre, you will know how much the track has changed. And also, in between, you would put on your test tyres, and you might have two or three test tyres, and then go back to the control tyre, and so you know exactly where you are. And we were coming to the end of the day, and at the end of the day, I always insisted that we put on the control tyre. And Nicky was, no, 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 I've got to go, I've got to go. And Nicky swore at me, as he used to, but obviously in a bit of a joking manner. This is bullshit, Herbie. Uh, yeah, a little it, bit yeah. worse than that. <laughs> and then, uh, so he jumped in the car and he said, I can tell you now. He said, I'm going to do a, I'm using this as a, you know, this is not the actual figures, but I'm going to do a 34-2-6. Yeah, yeah, well, just get in and go. And I wouldn't show him the, the pit board. I never used to show the pit bull with a time on when we were tyre testing because if you saw that you were going quicker, you'd come in immediately, oh, yeah, the tyre's better. So, and, and, and Nicky was okay with that. And so anyway, he jumped in the car, went off, and it wasn't down to a tenth. He was two hundredths out. And after that, whatever Nicky said, it was like, you know, he's, he's God. Was Nicky the best driver you ever worked with? And I'm including Jochen Rint and all the Lotus guys as well. He was maybe the most intelligent. You've got to remember, John Watson, you know, he was a quick driver. And when he was driving alongside Nicky, he was, you know, often he was quicker than Nicky. Nelson as a world champion, again, very difficult to say, but as an all-rounder, maybe Nicky was number one out, out of the drivers that I've actually worked with. One more I wanted to ask you about was Carlos Reutemann. Yeah, Carlos, uh, a lovely guy, but unfortunately he wasn't consistent. Uh, he was very up and down. And as soon as there was a, a, a problem, a, a hiccup, then he, he was down. He was, I remember Jackie Stewart being able to wind Carlos up and by saying, oh, you know, this tire is that good. And then Carlos would come in, yeah, Jackie says this and Jackie says that. Well, he gave away the world championship, unfortunately, uh, when he was with Williams. 1981 Las yeah, Vegas, and which, you won it. Which he gave to us, uh, which, you know, he should have he won that. But 
again, really nice guy. We we all liked him very much. Uh, still in contact with him. I think the last time we saw him was four years, five years ago in Brazil. Didn't like the limelight. Kept himself to himself. But very nice guy. But no, I wouldn't put Carlos in 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 PK or John Watson or Nicky Lauder. I wouldn't put him in that in that group. And while you were at Brabham, we've talked about some of the innovations and, and the games that were played. But what about the Brabham fan car? Swedish it was very Grand Prix. Good, wasn't it? <laughs> and it was completely legal. The FIA came along and, uh, and checked the car in the Chesington factory. And uh, they were trying to measure <laughs> the, uh, the downfalls to the car while the engine was running. And I don't know, but somehow one of the skirts was held up and uh, the car didn't move. <laughs> so, so for people who don't know, this was a, a hugely innovative car where a fan literally sucked it onto the ground. So the more the drivers, Nicky, was giving it a bootload of revs, could you actually see it being physically sucked to the ground, even if it, if it was stationary? Uh, yes, you could. <laughs> Yeah. So, of course, it goes to the Swedish Grand Prix in 78 and cleans up. Yeah. The only unfortunate thing was poor John. Uh, John Watson was the other driver. You know, we should have had a one-two there, easy. Uh, but I think if we had had a one-two, well, as, as you know, unfortunately, Bernie withdrew the car after that uh, because he was, at that particular time, he was more looking after the future of Formula One rather than the, the future of Brabham, which... You know, looking back on it, I can fully understand. But if you were Brabham, after all the hours and the effort that went into that, it was very, very, very disappointing. And how did Bernie justify that decision to you guys, the people who had put all the work in? Ah, very simple. That uh, basically all the other teams, I think that they possibly would have just boycotted the next race. And as I say, Bernie was Foker at that time. And he had to protect the business of Formula One. And as Bernie got more and more involved in the running of Formula One in the late 70s, did he just throw the keys of the Formula One team at you, Herbie, and say, it's yours, run it, make it happen? No, not really. No, no, Bernie was still involved. Obviously, after Gordon left, and then the morale, that's when we kind of really went through the tough times. And... Bernie obviously was spending, although Bernie was based at the Brabham facility at Chesington, but he was running Formula One from that office. And he'd come out of an evening before going home and he liked to be involved in uh, where the decals went on the car. And he, you know, he, still, he, he still had a passion and he still is today. He's still a racer. But then obviously he did become more involved. And I, I personally... With Bernie, I've always kind of had to wear two hats. I remember I was involved also in making passes for personnel for Formula One. And then when Bernie actually stopped the company and he sold the company to Alfa Romeo and we kept everybody on and that was to build the pro car, which was going to be basically a Formula One car with a production body shell. And Bernie was, would still be out in the workshop looking at that. But in those days, I then moved over to television. What era are we talking now, Herbie? 87, 
something like that. So he sells Brabham in 87 and then you become a TV executive. Correct. And here I am. I'm turned up my first race. I'm in uh, Rio and Murray Walker and Rye TV come up to me. Can we have the first unilateral? And ah, uh, yeah, let me look into that. And also I was dealing with handing out the radio licenses because we used to charge the people at the circuit if you wanted to go out on radio and then we had to check who was using the radios etc and you had to pay and these unilaterals what the hell is a unilateral and so i telephoned the european broadcast union and said can you tell me what a unilateral is and they said haven't you ordered them uh, no and for the people that don't know, the unilateral is the, a separate satellite feed that you have to book and pay for. So that at the end of the Grand Prix, once the official broadcast coverage has stopped, you then buy your satellite time to interview the drivers. And obviously the BBC were very interested uh, because of uh, Nigel Mansell uh, and Italy because of Ferrari. And on top of that, I was then looking after the podium as well. And when I say the podium, it was a case of opening the bottles of champagne beforehand. And then to do the unilaterals, and I'll never forget Nigel, he sliced his finger on, on, the, uh, on the trophy. It was a glass trophy. And we're waiting for the unilaterals, and Nigel, no, no, wait, wait. And he's squeezing his finger and as we start, the first thing we see is the blood and it's, oh, and it's, and it's a drama. But then I learned very quickly that you would pay for two minutes or three minutes and then they were going over the time. So then I came up and I would be underneath the, uh, the live camera on my hands and knees with a clock and doing a countdown and right now we've got to stop. And there was one occasion, because normally you'd have the three drivers, and there was one occasion where I'm underneath the television and Gerhard Berger has a litre bottle of water. And as I'm bending down on my hands and knees, he puts it down my trousers and squeezes a litre of water. And obviously I can't stand up because my head is then in front of the camera. So they were sort of classic days. Did you resent the fact that Bernie threw you in at the deep end, particularly with the TV? No, I've always been thrown in at the deep end <laughs> all the time. Then we had, uh, there was some people that wanted to resurrect Brabham. And it was a bit of a nasty fight. But eventually, a Swiss guy called Lutie, he bought the team, you know, basically started the team up again. And Bernie and myself went to our pub for lunch where I would say the majority of decisions were taken even down to things like the fan car, the pit stops, etc. I remember signing, being there, where we signed the contract for the first Australian Grand Prix in Adelaide. And John Bannon, who was the premier of Adelaide, turning up outside the factory and Bernie saying, OK, let's go to the pub. And, this is uh, the pub in Chessington. Correct. And there it was decided, yeah, yeah, we'll go and race in Australia. And so this pub had a, had a, a lot to answer for. Herbie, so many extraordinary stories. It's fantastic to talk to you. Can we just end this by talking about the FIA? And we sort of need to go back to Brabham, don't we? Because you hired 
Charlie Whiting as a mechanic in 1978. I think he'd been at Hesketh before. And you'd go on to work with Charlie for the next 40 odd years. Did you hit it off immediately with him? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny, but just prior to Charlie's passing, we were just talking about that, that kind of one of the first tests that he that he went to uh, uh, and Gordon wasn't there. And of course, in, no, in those days, we used to uh, share rooms. And yeah, I was sharing a room with, with Charlie when, and Charlie was really more like the junior mechanic. And we, we got on very well because our backgrounds were very, very similar in some ways. So, we, so with Charlie, he went through the ranks and ended up obviously as, uh, as chief engineer. Then when he went to the FIA, that was more or less as a scrutineer and that was for uh, WEC. Uh, I'm not sure what it was called in those days, but uh, sports car racing, which Charlie went off to do that. Then he moved to Formula One as uh, basically it was scrutineer, really. And then when I became involved, which was, uh, I think, a year later, I had a phone call from Bernie and Max uh, saying, uh, you're going to be uh, helping the FIA next year. I said, well, no, no, you know, I'm with Yamaha. No, 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 don't worry. We've got, uh, we've got this new chap. Uh, he doesn't know too much about the racing. He's a submarine captain. And Roger Lane not. Correct. So the idea was that I would assist him in fact, I think on my pass, I was listed as uh, FIA race director advisor. And Roger obviously didn't know anything about the actual circuits or the, the actual running of it because he was a, a very keen enthusiast. And he was telling me how he used to, slightly illegal, bring the, bring the submarine up as high as possible so they could hear the radio to hear the Grand Prix. Uh, and, and when he left the Navy in Portsmouth. Uh, he was dressed in his whites and he was in a McLaren F1 road car with a trailer leaving Portsmouth. And this, I remember, it was the, uh, the photo appeared on the front page of the Times, uh, Telegraph. It was, it was big news. So I met with uh, Roger beforehand. We kept in contact. And yeah, so for one year I was doing that. And that's when I was also asked to be the starter. So we made Charlie the starter. Unfortunately, uh, things never really worked out with Roger. Uh, I remember being with Max in Monza. And right, who will be the race director? And I couldn't be the race director because I was still working with, with Yamaha. And I was very committed with Yamaha. I recommended Charlie. And Max, yes. And that was it. And then Charlie was the race director. And then I was only going to do one more year with Charlie. I was going to do the same job that I was doing uh, with Roger and basically advising and helping Charlie because he'd never worked in race control before. Obviously, he you know, didn't really have a clue. The idea was one year and then, what, 23 years later, we were still at it until I... Why did you keep going? Ha, huh, because I enjoyed it. The passion, the only, the only thing that I will say is, you know, I'm involved with motorcycle racing and I'm involved with a team. With a team, you have your highs and your lows. And at the end of the race meeting, you'll walk out 
on a low, oh, this went wrong, that went wrong, and we didn't do this. And then you'll walk out where you've won the race, or in particular, I was very fortunate that you know, two years ago we won the World Superbike Championship. And, yeah, that's a great high. And unfortunately, in race control, the only thing at the end of the race was Charlie and myself would shake each other's hands and say, we survived. We never had, yes, you know, oh, it was great, we did this, we did that. No. And when we had some... So, really so you miss the emotional roller coaster. Exactly. Also, when you're in race control, you can't show those emotions. You can't think, okay, well, I'm a fan of Lewis's and yes, he's just overtaken and you can't sit in race control and bang the desk and yeah, go on. No, it's, you have to just remain calm the whole time. We couldn't allow ourselves to become passionate about a particular car or our, a particular driver. It was the only thing about working in race control is it's not emotional. When you're with a team, it is emotional. Talking of emotions, though, obviously Charlie passed away a few years ago now. When you think of him now, what comes to mind? I think of Charlie every day, actually. There's always something. And, of course, going to circuits now where they've put up plaques for Charlie. Uh, I was down in Barcelona for my World Superbikes three weeks ago. And, you know, they've named one office the, in fact, one, one little plaque is the Charlie and Herbie office and outside is the big one that says, you know, Charlie Whiting. Yeah, you go to Austin, you go to Mexico. Uh, in fact, the, the, the complete race control, sorry, in Barcelona is known as the Charlie Whiting race control. Everyone had so much respect for Charlie. There's only one Bernie and there's, there was only one Charlie. And as we've seen, to replace Charlie, which is what I always said, is, you know, you need four people to replace Charlie. That's, that's how dedicated, smart, clever, and hardworking in particular that Charlie was. And Charlie would never switch off, apart from a few glasses of wine. But even the few glasses of wine, we were always talking about where we could make things better. Because remember, Charlie wasn't just race director. He was technical director, you know, and he had Joe Bauer under him. So Charlie had all the technical directors during the Grand Prix coming into our office, talking, can we do this, can we do that? And Charlie was making that decision. Charlie was also the safety officer. And so that meant circuit inspections, making sure that everything was as safe as possible. Obviously, from a race director's perspective, you've also got to think about safety as well anyway, but he was the official safety director. And, of course, he was the starter. Now, the whole time that I was with Charlie, Charlie never once was in race control for the start. He was the starter. I always thought that was a mad thing because most incidents happen at the start or just afterwards and Charlie the race director would be walking up the pit lane going from the start gantry back to race control but yeah thank you Herbie thank you Herbie he could rely on you couldn't he oh yeah so as I say obviously I had to uh, all of the incidents and if it was a start line accident Charlie would stay down on the uh, on, on the start podium and I never forget that we, we had a few classics uh, and one was Spa 
where we had the, the big accident after Turn 1, on, on lap 1. 1998? Yeah, and that was a big one. And I just said, red flag, red flag. And Charlie was in the position to do the red flag on the, on the start podium. And he said, why? Well, I said, red flag. Don't ask why. <laughs> but could Charlie uh, ever make a mistake? Yes. Silverstone. If you remember, if a car was starting from the pit lane, you would wait until the cars have gone past the pit exit and then you would press the green to allow the car that was starting from the pits. And Silverstone, the old start podium, was right over the track and you had a circuit advertising on both sides. And so there was only a small hole that Charlie could look through to see when the car had actually exited the pits. And he was leaning over to press because he could control the pit exit light from there. In fact, that was the only way you could control it. And Charlie pressed the button to uh, let the car go. And all of a sudden, it was red flag. He'd pressed the wrong button. And Michael Schumacher had his major accident. Red flag. The race is being stopped. The race is being stopped as it was last year. Oh. Oh. not realising that uh, I suspect somebody slowed down under reds and Michael's come across him at a great rate of knots. Has he hurt his legs? I don't think he should have done. He's hit those tyres, although at quite a rate of knots. But Michael's slamming the steering wheel. I don't know whether it's through frustration that uh, he's out of the race or frustration because he knows he's injured something. And so the red flag, everyone thought it was for Michael. The red flag actually came out before Michael's accident. So that's 1999 of, when Michael crashed in the Ferrari at Stowe. Yeah. Had a little bit of luck on our side. And then it happened again in Monte Carlo. Charlie pressed the wrong button, red flag. And then we had the accident at Lowe's where it was a red flag. The whole of Lowe's was completely blocked. And do you remember, Herbie, where you were, what you were doing when you heard that he'd passed away in Melbourne in 2019? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I was in Thailand for World Superbikes and I didn't have my phone switched on. Woke up in the morning, uh, a little bit sad. First thing I did was just opened up my iPad and saw this news. And I remember I closed the iPad. <sighs> yeah, I'm dreaming. And then I really woke up with a startling. Wow. And the first person that I could get hold of was uh, Tim Schenkin. And I didn't realise that they'd been trying to get hold of me during the night, but my phones were switched off because uh, they didn't have uh, the phone number for his wife, Juliet. Yeah, and I phoned Tim Schenkin and Tim said, I dreaded your call. And that's when I knew I was just in utter shock. Because two weeks before, we'd, uh, we were in Geneva together. Yeah, you know, he was my best mate. And, yeah, we just lived together. When you think about it, that however many years we were together, you know, every night we'd have dinner together, we'd drink together. So many rules and regulations were uh, made after a glass of wine. As I say, obviously, total, utter shock. Now, if you two were a, one of motor racing's great pairings, Herbie Blash, Charlie Whiting. 
What about Bernie Ecclestone and Max Mosley? Why do you think those two were so devastatingly effective when Bernie was running Formula One and Max Mosley was president of the FIA? Well, again, you've got to remember that uh, Bernie was very, very close to Charlie uh, and Max exactly the same. Max relied on Charlie for running Formula One and, and Bernie relied on Charlie to run Formula One. So do you think Max and Bernie wouldn't have been as effective together had Charlie not been there? I hate to think if Charlie hadn't have been there, I really can't see where Formula One maybe would be today. There's nobody but nobody I could think of that, well, number one could have done Charlie's job, but that Max and Bernie together would have supported. And Herbie, in this post-Bernie era of Formula One with Liberty, media and the Americans running the sport now. How different do you think it is? You've got to remember that in Bernie's time, we didn't have the, the social media, uh, which has obviously changed so much. And Liberty, uh, I have to say, dear Stefano, who I've got a lot of time for, and I have to say I've known Stefano from when I believe Stefano was 14 or 15, when he was my car park attendant at Imola and just shows what a racer uh, Stefano is, that he's been involved from the very early teenager years up to the position he's in at the moment, doing a great job. And Liberty is the future. Herbie, so many great stories. Um, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you. My final question to you is this. Fundamentally... Are you a car man or a bike man? I'm a six-wheeler. Six wheels on Herbie's wagon. Wasn't he brilliant? I could listen to Herbie all day. His anecdotes about Chapman, Ecclestone, Rint, Fittipaldi, Lauda, et al. were fascinating. And what about Brabham's technical tricks like heavy bodywork and water-cooled brakes? I feel like I understand the sport better now than I did an hour ago. Herbie, many thanks for your time. It was great to chat and I look forward to seeing you again at a race soon. Please send in your thoughts and stories about Herbie Blash. What did you think of our conversation? What was the highlight for you? Send me your thoughts via all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings us on to what you sent in about Otmar Safnauer after last week's show. Wow. Talk about timing. Otmar and I recorded that show the week before the Hungarian Grand Prix, and 10 days later, he was shown the exit from Alpine. What an extraordinary an often ruthless sport Formula One is. Many of you have written in. Let's start with this from Dom. Really interesting interview with Otmar and it gives me more hope as an Alpine fan. I agree with Otmar that the team needs to act like pirates to get up the grid and the power unit deficit sounds quite ominous. So I hope that can be resolved soon. I agree, Dom. However good those updates were at Spa that they ran on the car, until they find equality with the other power unit manufacturers, it's going to be difficult for Alpine to win races. Next, let's hear from Magniston, who has some thoughts on Otmar's future. 
I think Otmar should go back to smaller independent teams. He led a super successful stint at Force India and Racing Point, and maybe that's more his forte. I wish him well, and I don't think the Alpine stint should define his career. Agree with that, Magnistan. And one thing you need as a team principal is time. And Otmar wasn't really given that luxury, was he? Finally, here's Ron DiBiassi, Tom. Your interviews have been the kiss of death for Alpine management. I'm kidding, of course, but neither figure lasted long after their Beyond the Grid appearances. Gosh, I know, Ron. I spoke to Laurent Rossi at the start of the year and now Otmar, and they've both been shown the door. Let's hope it's nothing that either of them said on the show. Now, we'll leave it there for messages this week, but thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. And that's pretty much it for this week. And like Formula One, Beyond the Grid is taking a short summer break. I'll be back with another great guest on Wednesday, the 23rd of August. That's three weeks time, just ahead of the Dutch Grand Prix. In the meantime, we'll still be bringing you F1 Nation every Monday and you can listen to our review of the Belgian Grand Prix right now. Just search for F1 Nation in your podcast app. Have a great summer, everyone. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.